0: she says something about getting him a drink and and he says i don't like to do it in public it's too crowded i was like i feel that dude that's a a great line especially for 2020
1: Hi and welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And
0: I'm Thomas Horton.
1: And here on Cine Nation we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And today's episode is our first episode in our month-long discussion on film noir. It's November, so it's a perfect time to celebrate film noir. For our first episode, we are talking about the 1944 film Murder, My Sweet, the first film to portray the famous fictional detective Philip Marlowe, who was created by famed author Raymond Chandler. Film noir is a unique genre because even though it existed within like a specific time, it is a genre that has endured for decades, serving as a major influence on countless filmmakers. This led to the evolution of the genre with such subgenres as neo-noir and tech noir, which is kind of this more like sci-fi heavy technological kind of version of it. Neon noir, which is kind of big in the 80s and 90s, and even the heist genre to an extent. So before we dive into Murder, My Sweet... I want to spend a little time on film noir as a whole. So, Thomas, when you think of film noir, what do you think of?
0: Uh, I, I think of Raymond Chandler, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you think of or even uh, Raymond Chandler or Humphrey Bogart. You know, you, there's there's you know, Maltese Falcon um, as well, kind of, and you just think of these detectives. They've got their their fedoras down low. There's shadows cast everywhere. They're waiting in an alleyway. Somebody runs past in the shadows. It's um, yeah, this is such an interesting genre because it's unlike many of the other genres we talked about, which are almost always defined by like storytelling tropes. This is a genre which is as equally defined by its style as it is the storytelling tropes. But they're both there. Like you have to have both.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's actually kind of my overarching question for the month and with the genre of film noir is is noir a genre or is it a style i think it can be both but i think there is some misconceptions of what it what it is like i see like a lot of a lot of young filmmakers or a lot of filmmakers the past few years that like they make a noir film Oh, i want to make a noir film a neo-noir film and they're influenced by these old films from the 1940s but they forget that these films are kind of made in response to what was happening in the world with world war II going on and just kind of the problems in the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it, it reflected that in terms of its tone and even the style. And I think nowadays you can't just take the tropes of a noir and put it in a modern film and not change it up. Like you have to have a spin to it. You have to bring your own context to it. How is our current world reflecting the story how can you tell a noir through our current world's i guess viewpoint and i think that's a big thing that people tend to forget they just say oh i can take a bag of money and uh, a guy or a bag of money a washed up boxer." this you have to create something new to it but um before we start kind of going to the movie today also to thomas what are some tropes you think of within the film noir genre
0: i mean visually like I said, the shadows um, film noir is something that developed from German expressionism. And there's that very yeah, yeah, yeah. stark contrast between light and dark and, and shadows being thrown everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, storytelling. It's funny. Um, I can't remember where I heard this. Someone in a, in a film or like a parody has made a joke about this before. And I can't remember if it's Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Um, but there's that joke that's like, um mm-hmm. I'm, I always work two cases, and and they always end up related to each other in the end. And and Murder My Sweet is <laughs> is definitely one of those. But it, it, that that's a that's a classic Raymond Chandler thing. Is there's always like a secondary case that mm-hmm. seems unimportant, and then in the end they all come together somehow. Um, but yeah, I mean you've always you've got your like hardened detective who doesn't really care about anything. He's he's jaded, possibly alcoholic, and um, and he's he's yeah. too cool for everything he's involved in.
1: So, so, here's what's interesting because you've said detective a few times, and I feel like there is this misconception of of noir being full, noir stories being full of detectives. And like when you think of some of the big famous noir films, like I, I think of a double indemnity, and like Frederick Murray is playing an insurance yeah. salesman. They're, like there's an investigation with like Edward G. Robinson and all that stuff, but like mm-hmm. he's an insurance guy who's like trying to like. Uh, create a claim to where he can make some money with barbara stanwick and so i i think the neo-noir kind of genre that, that popped up in the 70s into now is it's it's affected how we view film noir thinking it's all about detectives hard-boiled detectives but in reality like it could just be a soldier coming home from World War
0: II. Yeah, or, you know, criminals without any detective aspect. Like, the postman always rings twice. Yeah, is, yeah, 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 They're not even career criminals. You know, it's two people considering committing a crime for the first time.
1: Exactly. You, you, like, you, you have that detective character, but you have you have more. Like, another character kind of mentioned, I think, before, but um, I want to bring up again here. And I don't know if we're going to talk about the rest of the, the month, but I want to kind of state it is is like the washed-up boxer, mm. which is it was prevalent in kind of the 1940s noir films a big one being the setup by robert wise directed by robert wise and stars robert ryan as this boxer who is asked to throw a fight and and you see some of these archetypes and story story storylines pop up later on like i mean and these kind of pulpy storylines that came from the like the pulp novels or pulp stories from these magazines and like again it it i see kind of through line with those and say like tarantino's pulp fiction where it's taking the character of butch played by bruce willis and kind of takes the premise of uh the robert ryan movies setup and it it uses it and creates something new with it um but then you also kind of have like the femme fatale which like weirdly i think the femme fatale has probably outlasted the whole detective like it's become more influential yeah
0: I think I think that's the character that endures I mean because in postman always drinks twice like I brought up has a, a, a film fatale type character yeah I think that's definitely the 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 archetype that that oversees this subgenre more than anything else
1: yeah yeah and and usually in some of these early kind of film noir you're gonna see kind of the opposite character pop up it's like you had the femme fatale who's this kind of sexual being and also the untrustworthy character. And then you have this other woman that's more of the dutiful, trusting woman. And, and even though I feel like some of this is out of date, out, out of date, um, it's like, she's the one that the, the love, the main love interest, the character should end up with. And the femme fatales, the one that like is the dangerous one because she's, she has more of a plan and is more independent. Um, and she's against kind of the, like she's against the kind of normal, Uh, societal norms I guess you could say when the the trusting woman I guess we'll call it is the one that adheres to what society wants most of the time I don't say it's it's always the case in the these movies but it's just it's prominent and and that's going to come into play today with Murder My Sweet and then you have another thing called like the MacGuffin which is a big thing in Hitchcock movies of like the MacGuffin is a uh, an object or something that is that kind of motivates the plot motivates the characters within the plot but it really means nothing at the end of the day like it's 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 maltese falcon with the the falcon that sam spade humphrey bogart's after or it's kiss me deadly or it's even the microfilm of north by northwest which is i don't really consider noir but it's that kind of macguffin or uh, even pulp fiction to an extent just to kind of put it in, in like a modern context the briefcase
0: the stuff dreams are made of
1: yeah yeah, yeah exactly and then you like you have another thing like like kind of gray morality like i I, a lot of times majority of the characters in in film noir are morally flawed in some way Mm -hmm. and that's prevalent throughout most of the film noir genre there's a few exceptions um and then you it's again you talked about the visual style like the heavy shadows and kind of uh, german expressionism uh you kind of have the post-world war ii setting uh or even during the war I know like and then certain movies in the 40s like deal with again veterans coming home like a movie like active violence that deals with kind of returning veterans who are trying to even the score of what happened when they're at war and even to the point like it continues into the 50s of of like older characters who fought in the war 10 to 15 years before Um and then you also kind of have like a heist scenario with something like the killing mm. or odds against tomorrow that's or I mean it's I think it's kind of predates I think it's this high sierra is one that i think it's not really i don't know if it's considered noir but it's kind of high. but you have a lot of stuff kind of hopping or, or coming up in that in that era and then you have a big thing too is like urban setting um majority of the noir films of the of that of that specific traditional era take place in the urban setting there's always a few exceptions like some are kind of like desert towns like small towns like um uh ride the pink horse with robert montgomery is like a border town is what it is so there's there's exceptions but majority of time it is urban settings mm-hmm. uh because it's it's kind of again it goes to kind of the post-world war ii era and and before we move on i want to kind of give you context of like what i what we we're kind of like looking at with film noir like the years um because if, there's kind of debate of when the years kind of are but i think kind of the the big kind of i say and if you're gonna pick a starting point end point would look at like 1940 would be the start point and the ending point would be 1960. Uh, 1940 with things like The Maltese Falcon and Stranger on the Third Floor, which is kind of considered like the first true noir in a way by certain people. But 60, I I think a movie that weirdly weirdly kind of uh, signifies the end of the traditional noir era would be Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho Mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of tropes from the noir genre and puts it in a little bit different. It has a new spin to it. I mean, you, you have the stolen money from the beginning of the movie that that Marion Crane takes the money and leaves mm-hmm. essentially and is on the run uh, like a lot of characters in noir films. Uh, she, weirdly, too, you could kind of see her as the femme fatale. She's stealing the money and even even the ending of Spoiler Alerts for Psycho, um, even the ending is kind of like a like in a lot of noir films. It's, a, it's this explanation of here's what you missed. Here's what happened. And that's very prevalent in a lot of mystery films, but like it's a it, it happened a lot in these kind of noir mysteries and Psycho kind of continues that. And so that's kind of like even takes kind of the visual style to it in a way, too. So that's kind of like I see is like a stopping point with the the noir genre because it takes those tropes and just puts them in a blender and makes something completely fresh and new. But yeah, like those tr- these those tropes that we kind of that we're talking about here, like they're going to come to play probably the rest of the month when we talk about kind of movies in the film noir genre. And and the tropes are going to really come to play today because M- Murder, My Sweet is one of the early noirs and it has a lot of these tropes. So Murder, My Sweet, released in 1944, was directed by Edward Dmytryk and was adapted from Raymond Chandler's novel, Farewell, My Lovely. It was released right in the middle of America's involvement in World War II. And, and we're going to be talking about this movie kind of in depth. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to be spoiled, you can rent on Amazon Prime, iTunes, Vudu, or wherever you get your movies. So Thomas, uh, what is Murder My Sweet about? It's about a jade necklace, right? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the mm-hmm. most
0: important mm-hmm. thing that, in the film, right?
1: That that is the MacGuffin. That is the <laughs> MacGuffin.
0: Um, yeah, so it's about uh, Philip Marlowe, or the the f- possibly the most famous of all literary American detectives um who is hired in seemingly completely unrelated case it opens with him being hired to track down this guy's lost girlfriend who used to be a, a nightclub singer um but in the meantime he gets roped into uh being the bodyguard for a man who's going to pay off a blackmailing debt and while he's at the payoff the his client is killed and he's knocked out and when he comes to he starts investigating what happened which leads him down this trail of a uh, rich man in Brentwood, whose young wife uh, lost a jade necklace, had it stolen from her and was paying for it to be returned. And that's that's what the payment was for. And, and a, a mob boss gets involved and the the woman's stepdaughter gets involved and it all ends up connected to each other.
1: <laughs> yes, it does. So you bring up a good point in terms of the connecting stuff, because that's going to come into play later when I talk about the history of how this got made. But you had never seen this movie before.
0: I had not, no. So what What are your initial thoughts on this film? Uh, I sent you one of my initial thoughts. It's a little <laughs> tough for me to to see Dick Powell as as Philip Marlowe, because the whole time okay. I was just waiting for him to break out into Young and Healthy from... 42nd street he's um uh-huh. he's an actor who made his career as a as a singer dancer in the kind of review type films of the 1930s yeah and so you know it's very obvious in this film it's like 42 he's like i'm gonna do some dramas now and he, he's good in this like he 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 handles yeah, it well yeah, yeah. i still think i still think philip marlowe is, is humphrey bogart's role but uh but that was after this he he, he yeah. was not the first to it um but no he's he's solid he's solid in this it's just a little jarring because because he's i was
1: i was like i was like i'm coming to
0: argue this it's (laughs) it's like if you know it's like if you had put mickey rooney in this role like eventually maybe he could have i could have gotten used to it but i'm gonna see him as mickey rooney for a while and that's that's dick powell had a very similar career as mickey rooney in in the beginning of his career
1: and side note with mickey rooney he's also in a couple of noirs that i think are actually really good one called drive a crooked road um where he's playing the kind of lead character. But he weirdly in that movie, he plays that. What's interesting about film is that he plays a a character that's not morally flawed. And that's how it subverts the genres that everyone around him is, but he's not. Hmm. Um, But no, I, yes. And again, that's coming to play is that Dick Powell was known for um, other, these musical genre films. I guess, I guess if you want to talk about comparison piece and put it in modern day context, it's basically it's sandler doing uncut gems <laughs> it's Sa- it's sam it's sandler it's adam sandler doing a bunch of comedies that everyone knows for and like cool he's in this movie called uncut gems let me go see it wait what the hell is this they do both revolve around expensive pieces of jewelry so um yeah and i think jade is it isn't it jade and uncut gems oh, too, or like am diamonds. i wrong well no it's diamonds but i thought I, I i thought like or i thought there was something about jade in the movie oh maybe i'm wrong I don't know. I have It's been it's been a year since I've seen it.
0: I do love. I love that part when the guy's like, "What do you know about Jade?" And he's like, "It's green, isn't it?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> so here, here's okay. So there, this is a big debate, uh, in I guess Chandler fandom uh, and noir fandom is that who is the best Phil, Philip Marlowe? And some people argue it's Dick Powell, and a lot of people argue it's Bogart
0: nobody nobody's nobody's riding for elliot gould out here
1: i well some people are though that's that's the, like the neo-noir i mean the thing is a lot of different actors have played philip marlowe from um elliot gould and long goodbye to bogart in the big sleep to um uh robert montgomery in the lady in the lake even danny glover played him in like a tv episode in the 90s for a tv show called fallen angels like this like neo-noir showtime series Uh, And Robert Mitchum played Marlowe as well in the seventies, which we'll talk about later when he's like late, like late fifties, I think is what it is or forties. Yeah, I think so Bogart has the, like the, the hardened edge to like the hardened, like hard boiled detective. Like he's very rough around the edges. Um, When pal is more of like, I consider him more of like the everyman who's playing the character, and so he's like he's just wanting to make a quick buck is kind of what it is, and so that's where I think it's like I think Bogart as a persona transcends the role of Marlowe if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean that's like, that's
0: you you could you could say you know how different is is Philip Marlowe from Sam Spade in Maltese Falcon. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I could see that, and,
1: and that's kind of how I feel is that like so like as a as a character. I'm not arguing Dick Powell's a better actor as Bogart. That's just, that'd be stupid. <laughs> but I think as the character is that Powell plays a character, Bogart's playing Bogart with the little bit changed up. But that's how I feel. And we'll we'll discuss more of that. I said, I've weirdly watched this film a lot in the past few. I watched it like two years ago for the first time. It's one we showed last year at our like little series that we did at Sideshow Books in Culver City. And it's, it's one that when I think of film noir, this is the movie I think of because all the stuff we talked about, the urban setting, the narration, the MacGuffin, the morally flawed characters, the femme fatale, the dutiful woman, all that's here in this movie. Like mm-hmm. every single one of those things is in this film. And so it might not be the best film noir, but I, I want to say that I think it's one of the most... It's one of the one of the most perfect examples of the genre and style of film noir.
2: Wanna make a statement? Boys tell me I did a couple of murders. Anything in it? You got a rope under my ears, huh? I think you better let me have it. I'll have to hold it on you, but I think you better let me have it. Okay, darling. Bring in your notebook. We're all set. The works? Yeah. Some of it, you know, if I misquote your wife. let's get it on the record from the beginning with Malloy. Then, well, it was about seven o'clock. Anyway, it was dark. What are you doing at the office that late? I'm a homing pigeon. I always come back to the stinking coop, no matter how late it is.
1: History of how this got made. I'm gonna give you a little context on Chandler as well, because I think that's important here. All right. Um, from 1922, to 1931, Raymond Chandler worked for an oil company where he worked his way up from bookkeeper to vice president of the company, but in 1931 he was fired due to alcoholism, excessive absences, affairs with female employees, and threatened suicides. Okay. Before that, however, Chandler was a writer. Uh, while from Chicago, Chandler lived in a, lived uh, for a time in England with his family, and while there, he began writing for a newspaper. Um, that career failed, but he continued to write poetry in his spare time after he was fired from the oil company and in the middle of the depression Chandler said, you know what? I'll make money by being a writer, <laughs> which just feels funny mm-hmm. to me. Um, his first professional work was published in 1933, a short pulp story. Um, and during the thirties, he continued to write these short stories for pulp magazines. And these pulp magazines were kind of these like cheap magazines of just like kind of crime stories. In 1939, Chandler published his first novel, The Big Sleep, which is the first appearance of his famous fictional detective, Philip Marlowe. And I've kind of heard and read that he wanted Marlowe to be his like American version of Sherlock Holmes. But like, he's this wisecracking everyman who's not like trying to solve everything. He's not one step ahead of everyone. Mm -hmm. He's always like coming in at the right moment, kind of. But for his first novel, Chandler said he cannibalized some of his short stories from the nov- from, for the novel, meaning he stole the plots from his short stories and combined them for a longer story. So this is why when you say he has all these separate things running together or running like parallel each other and they connect at one point. Mm-hmm. It's because he was taking these short stories he wrote and literally like, like essentially pushing them together mm. to make sense of them. Uh, And for his next novel, Farewell, My Lovely, Chandler did the same thing, taking three previous stories and wove them together. And Farewell, My Lovely would be the basis for Murder, My Sweet. Uh, He said as he wrote these books, he soon realized that to him, the plots didn't matter. It was the style that mattered more. So after the success of both these novels, Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely, Hollywood came calling. RKO bought the rights to *Fair My Lovely* for two thousand dollars, which is about thirty-seven thousand dollars today. Mm-hmm. So, still like, I mean, it's about for for like a like it's it's an option. It's a low rent option, or it's not even an option. They're buying it outright. So, thirty-seven thousand is kind of kind of cheap. Mm-hmm. It feels like um, they used the plot *Fair My Lovely* for a movie called *The Falcon Takes Over* the third film in a detective movie series called The Falcon, and it was released in 1942, so two years before this movie. Uh, A a couple other films did the same thing with Chandler's novels. And so in 1942, after The Falcon takes over, uh, RKO hired a new executive vice president of production, uh, Charles uh, Corner, to take over. He's most famous now, known for being the man who fired Orson Welles, Mm. After Citizen, after, or after Magnificent Ambersons. But Corner actually kind of like is given credit for like saving RKO during his reign. And he convinced the studio to make a true adaptation of Feral My Lovely, because he believed Philip Mar- Marlowe was an untapped character and that the previous film didn't capture Chandler's style. Mm. So he hires producer Adrian Scott and director Edward Dimitrik to take over the picture but Cor- Corner mainly wanted to make this film, apparently, to resurrect the career of Claire Trevor, who plays Helen, the femme fatale in the movie.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, Trevor, Trevor was essentially regulated like B-movie westerns, where she was the fifth Bill cast member. And for some reason, he wanted to like revitalize her career. Corner also asked Raymond Chandler to adapt the novels for screen, but Chandler could not do it because he was co-writing the screenplay for Double Indemnity with Billy Wilder.
0: Nice.
1: So, Corner hired a 33-year-old writer, John Paxton, to adapt Chandler's novel. Paxton had only one credit to his name, a movie called My Pal Wolf, a drama about a girl and her dog. That's a very... That sounds good. Yeah. I'd <laughs> That's that. your first movie up. 33 years old. Uh, at the time of the <laughs> film's development, Cor- Cor- Corner was attempting to sign musical star Dick Powell to RKO. Now, Powell was like 39 at this time. Uh, he said he would only sign a contract with RKO if his first movie would not be a musical because he had been trying to get out of musicals for almost a decade. He saw him, he's like, I can't keep playing these young male, as we were talking about before, these young male like leads in musical comedies. Because um, before attempting to get the role of Marlowe, he was at Paramount Pictures and Powell tried to get the lead role in Double Indemnity, mm. but they gave it to Fred McMurray, also being cast against type, who was mostly known for comedy roles. Um, and Powell's like, I'm out. I want to go somewhere else and not play musical comedy. Uh, it's actually, he did something similar before where he was at Warner Brothers and he left to not be in musicals <laughs> Paramount, but Paramount just put him in more, in more musicals. And so he said, I want to come to to RKO, but I want to do a drama first. Director Edward Dimitrik was horrified yeah. <laughs> when finding out that Powell was up for the role, especially since this was like Dimitrik's first big kind of studio movie. Uh, so Corner and Dimitrik decided to do a screen test for Dick Powell. And after it was over, Corner signed him to a multi-picture deal, paving the way for the first on-screen portrayal of Philip Marlowe. Okay that's how it got made solid screen test so favorite scenes we're gonna jump right into that what were your favorite scenes or give me one
0: um i like the i really like the i mean because you know the the film opens with him on his like other his 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 lesser case his like b case um yeah uh i liked the the woman that he went to go meet like the the drunk woman i thought that was a that was oh, yeah. a really fun scene, and then there's that moment when when he like walks out, and the voiceover's like, "Suddenly she wasn't so drunk anymore." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's when it's yeah when she, when she, she's hired by Moose. Moose, uh, I love Moose. Yeah, Moose, who's kind of the just got out of jail, like kind of like big muscular dude, it played by play uh, played by Mike Mazursky, who was a former wrestler, and they're trying to find it. Yeah, it goes to this woman who owns the bar. Or own the bar that the the showgirl used to work at that Moose was trying to find, and well it's the line that he says like middle aged with a f- a face that looks like mud is what he said because <laughs> she's like she's all she's always drunk and just kind of like like her faces are smushed up basically.
2: Mm-hmm. I spent a buck on another bar for some history. Mike Florian ran the joint until 1939. He died in 1940 in the middle of a glass of beer. His wife Jessie finished it for him. Tracing her was easy. I could do that. A real bright third grader could have done it, but not Malloy. He needed a private detective. She was a charming middle-aged lady with a face like a bucket of mud. I gave her a drink. She was a gal who'd take a drink if she had to knock you down to get the bottle.
3: That liquor's been keeping the right company all right. Just hold it careful, mister. This ain't no time to drop anything. What was it we was talking about?
2: A red-headed girl named Velma Valento. Used to work in your husband's place on Central Avenue.
3: Who was it you said you was, mister? There. Oh, a private cop. You didn't say that, mister. But <laughs> I knew you wasn't no regular cop. No regular cop ever bought a drink of that stuff.
2: Do you remember, Velma?
3: Who was that, copper? Velma. No, I don't seem to write off. What was it you said you wanted for?
2: I'm tracing her for a client of mine.
3: <laughs> I should not have sit here and barber with you, but when I like a guy and he buys me a drink, the ceiling's a limit.
1: <laughs> Going off that, too, you're talking about, like, oh, she wasn't so drunk anymore. I really like Powell's narration like in the movie as a whole.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing about Marlowe is he's he's witty. He's um he's yes. not he's yeah, not a yeah. great detective but he's like quick on his feet and he's always got like a comeback for everybody. So that that's and, and Powell Powell handles that well. Um yeah. It, it, you know, it's it's a different energy than than Bogart Bogart would later bring these like really biting comebacks like yes. like that he just a lot of times it was just like he thought he was better than than the other person in his scene and and was just like tearing them down whereas powell's got like a glint in his eye like he he's whenever bogart drops like a one-liner or when he come back it it just always feels like it's he's so disdainful of whoever he's interacting with and whereas powell feels like he's kind of like laughing at himself like oh i gotta got one off on him Very much so. Like,
1: it's again, it, he has this everyman quality to it where it's all, he's, it feels like he's always behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. And so when he gets a good, like, a good line like that, he's
0: like, oh, okay, I've won one. Yeah. I finally, I've gotten it. Yeah. And, and he, and, and that's the thing with, with, Mar, with Marlowe, too. And, and, and Bogart handles this well that is sometimes his, his mouth gets him into a bad situation. I, an, another yeah. scene I really yeah. like is when he meets, um, the kind of the mob boss for the first time is it Ar- artho yeah.
1: Some, it's it's uh, a- Am-thor. Amthor. Amthor.
0: yeah i knew it was a weird combination of vowels i mean of, of uh, consonants um and he like finds out that moose is in league with him and they had that scene where moose is like tell me tell me where she is and anthor is like tell me where the jade is and he's like back talking he's like sassing both of them yeah and he's like listen up uh, moose like anthor is obviously manipulating you like and and, and Amthor's just too dumb to realize what's going on. And then they're like all punching each other.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and in that scene, I think it's when Marlo, when pal well, pal pa is Marlo, but Marlo lays out like what he thinks is going on. Mm-hmm. And there's like a moment where it's this long pushing on Amthor, where Amthor realizes, oh, he knows nothing about what's actually happening yeah. right yeah. now. Because Amthor, I mean, it's, it's kind of referenced, it's not really said outright, but Amthor is basically selling drugs. Like, mm-hmm. that's what he's doing. Like, he's basically, he's he's a a, 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 a a gangster, basically, who's, like, bringing drugs into Los Angeles, essentially.
2: And that is your picture of Marriott and me. I am slightly disgusted and very disappointed. Don't look now, but Gussie the gun collector is back. I am very disappointed in you. Your thinking is untidy, like most so-called thinking today. You depress me. Suppose your theory were correct. I would have Mrs. Grail's jade now, wouldn't I? Unless something went wrong and you haven't got it. What could have gone wrong? Well, Marriott could have uh, lost his nerve and rung in a private dick. Take a private dick who'd risk his neck for a hundred bucks. He might get ambitious. He might figure that an expensive necklace would be a nice thing to have in the bank. This hypothetical detective of yours... He might be willing to part with the necklace for a consideration. Could be, if he had it. How big a consideration? It'd be difficult to discuss that until he produced the necklace. He might be bluffing, hoping to gain information. In which case, a great thinker might get the bright idea of trying to shake something out of him. You wouldn't suggest that. Only if you wanted to wear your face backwards for a while. No need for us to be at each other's throats, Mister Marlow. There's really no need for subterfuge.
1: And that leads to my next favorite scene, which might be my like the scene that blows me away every time when I watch it, and that's the dream sequence or or the drug trip yeah, that, that Marlow's on, where like he he's he actually says it. They talk about how I read how like I don't know if it's the first time they say it, but like he essentially says, "I was all coked up." Yeah, so it's like the first early reference of saying cocaine in in a movie of how he's just like because it shows that whole shot like the if if it's because some say it's like lsd i don't know what drug they're put like what they or what they give him mm-hmm. but you had that huge shot of the like the needle going in the syringe going in or to him mm-hmm. yeah i just think it's 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 crazy
0: yeah that was wild and you can definitely see especially in that sequence sometimes it can be you know when you watch something that is pure german expressionism like uh you know, like go back to like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or, or you see the way that German expressionism has a f- influenced somebody like Tim Burton, it can be yeah. kind of hard to make that connection to film noir when you have to be like, you know, it's it's in the shadows. It's in the blind, you know, the, the classic shot of like light coming through some blinds and everybody's face is yeah, yeah. cut like eight times. Yeah. You know, that's where a lot of the influences lie. But in that sequence, that felt like real true, like supernatural german expressionism for for yeah. you know part part of it i'm not saying it's, it's
1: taken from this but like there's a it looks like the sunken place and get out at one point yeah. we're like yeah he's like falling he away pat- from the door and like it's like glass is breaking and it's just everything spinning it like literally spinning out of control and then and also just i love how every time it leads to kind of his blackouts the, the ends up he keeps getting like hit in the head mm-hmm. i love the whole like uh There's that black pool again. Yeah. And I just, I just jumped right in and there was no bottom. Yeah. And
0: the way it's kind of animated to have the um, blackness like move in like, yeah, like water. And
1: yeah, just overtake him basically. But you said, you said Tim Burton and a scene that kind of gets me too is in that same dream sequence when he's reaching for like the stairs, Mm -hmm. it reminds me a little bit of Beetlejuice when like Beetlejuice goes from the, like the, the banister to the snake. And it kind of like, People reach for it or whatever. Yeah. That happens where Pal's reaching for the banister and it goes away and he falls. So, like, yeah. German expressionist.
2: The black pool opened up at my feet again, and I uh, dived in. Next thing I remember, I was going somewhere. It was not my idea. The rest of it was a crazy, coked-up dream. I had never been there before. There's the necklace.
1: And then what's so interesting, even after that, is that after he comes out of like his coma or his sleep, his drug induced sleep, they, they put this texture on the camera where it's like broken glass or something where it's like, it's trying to show the way his mind is right now, Mm -hmm. the way his vision is and how it's all cracked and kind of confused. And then it's like, as he continues to walk around the, the, the room to kind of get his bearings, that texture slowly like goes away. And then when, like later when he confronts the doctor, which is another thing I love when he confronts the doctor, it's kind of like, it's where he's, he's unshaven and it's a little bit like one of the, like the hardest Marlowe's or pals been as Marlowe in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of a sudden, like there's a rush of like the, the, like the, the drug coming back or whatever, where he's like feeling it after being up for so long. Mm -hmm. And they like bring that texture back so quickly to like show, Oh, he's still like in this mindset. But yeah, what else? I also mean, I like, I mean, the when helen hires marlo when she shows up at his like i don't know if it's his hotel or its apartment or whatever mm-hmm. and he's like he's like in the mirror and so if they do a great i mean the blocking in this movie is i think phenomenal of how they uh shoot like group scenes or they use mirrors like in that scene they're using like pal's reflection in the mirror to get helen in the background by the door mm-hmm. and she's like yeah it's like she all she asked him to go to uh uh like a nightclub that night is what it is and she's like oh like uh, there they would they prefer you wearing a shirt or something because he's in like he's just like under shirt As yeah i love
0: i love um uh she says something about um uh, getting him a drink and, and he says i don't like to I don't like to do it in public it's too crowded and i was like i feel that dude that's a, that's a great line <laughs> especially for 2020
4: do they have to know about me
0: would that bother you
4: we live pretty much by ourselves and my husband has a morbid fear of any kind of publicity he's not very strong
2: I'll manage it. How to go with Amthor?
4: I'm stubborn. I don't like being rushed.
2: I figure the way you were dressed tonight, if you were on the town, just stopped by here oh. to...
4: I was hoping you'd buy me a drink somewhere. Or don't you ever relax when you're on a case?
2: Not in public. It's too crowded.
4: <laughs> do you like the Coconut Beach Club?
2: I don't know. I've never been there. I'm the drive-in type.
4: The lights would be very flattering to you. They might even mellow you a little. It's
2: the sort of place where you have to wear a shirt.
1: You're right with you. I also really like the final confrontation at the beach house or where yeah. like the ocean house they're at. And it starts off just like again, the cinematography in this is is so great, but in some cases it's not as it's not as extravagant as some film noir is. It's sometimes very subtle, mm-hmm. like with when when Helen and him are in the beach house and she's just turning the lamps on and off how it will go from light to dark, light to dark. And it's the scene when, she, when he's coming in for the final confrontation and Helen's already there, Cal- Claire Trevor, and she's sitting in the dark corner on the couch and you just see like smoke rising up mm-hmm. and it's like a, a wide shot of the room and you're just like, what is going on? And then like, when she hears him coming in, she like readjusts real quick and you see her shadow for to prepare for him showing up
0: i also really like the scene when um it's Anne, right the yeah the daughter the the, the daughter um i i I like the scene when she hires him um they have they have really great chemistry in this they do and i love the i also love his his little like um his elevator operator guy they've got he's got a little rapport yeah and the elevator operator is like businesses business is doing better lately and he's like (laughs) yeah and he's like and better looking and and you just immediately know there's a woman in his office um then they have that whole exchange where she um she's tells him that she's a reporter and he he locks the door and then steals her purse and yeah they, they've, they've got it's a really great uh yeah like i said they've got great chemistry and it's a great way to kind of bring them together as you know him being very untrusting in the start um and and it leads us to kind of question her motives which uh, continues throughout
2: do your own typing miss allison why yes i'm not always this brilliant miss uh miss grail but i'm improving what do you do besides playing reporter you're a hot rock anyway dear i should toss you to the cops all i could tell them last night was that marriott was buying back some jewelry You'd knock their hats off with of that line about the jade. Have you ever known a Velma Valento, Miss Grail, a singer? Oh, well, it was another case, anyway. I was just hoping. Did your friends at the city hall tell you about the jade, too? Who does it belong to?
4: What's your interest in it?
2: Now, we're not going to get into place at all answering questions with more questions.
4: I'll take my answer first.
2: Okay. I'm interested in the jade, now that I know about it. Because I'd like to know who, besides me, might have killed Marriott. He gave me a hundred bucks to take care of him and I didn't. I'm just a small businessman in a very messy business, but I like to follow through on a sale.
4: The jade belongs to my father. Oh? Now unlock the door. I gathered
2: from Marriott that it belonged to a lady.
4: My father happens to be married.
2: Oh. Oh, yes, of course he would be. It was your mother then who was wearing it the night of the holdup.
4: She's not my mother.
2: Which one sent you here to field me out? It
4: was my own brilliant idea.
1: You talked about the the elevator guy. I like that guy because also too, it feels like yeah, he's the one tipping Marlowe off of like oh yeah, you got someone in your office. Mm-hmm. And it's even the scene when because there's the it's this first client that gets he hires Lindsay, uh Marriott, I believe yeah,
0: the one who gets killed.
1: Yes, who is essentially a he's a gay man and they don't hide it really at all that's it's very on the forefront He's, of like uh, what they're
0: showing foppish is the is the word yeah. that they that they used in the film i think i think the first the first tip up you know and this is this is Hayde's code hollywood so they had to be subtle about it but um yeah the the, the elevator operator says like he smells great yeah. And it's, you know, what does that say about men in the 1940s that, like, if you smelled good, you were a homosexual? But, um, yeah. you know, that's, that doesn't have much to say for heterosexual men at that time period. But <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you immediately hear that and you go, oh, yeah, every, everyone knows what that means. That's that's some yeah. classic like Hayes coding um, right there. Yeah. And that's you know, that's something we've talked a lot about the Hayes code uh, on this program but the noir was a, a genre that really played with the Hayes code a lot because it was a genre that was so heavily based in in pulp novels and sex and violence i mean that's what it was all about and so you know characters like the film fatale and you know there's a lot of off-screen death as we saw in yeah, this yeah. one when um Lindsay is killed Mar- when marriott yeah. is killed um a lot of off-screen death and a lot of off-screen sex and a lot of yeah. writers getting creative with how to convey that any
1: of your favorite scenes
0: yeah i mean I, I think the the final sequence it's it's really tough in, in noir to pull out like you said the final sequence where everything you you everything gets explained to you um yeah and i think they did it re- really well in this one and and the the energy especially all the all the the that all the people involved kind of come together for it um yeah really keeps it exciting and keeps it very dynamic. Yeah. It never, it never feels like it's slowed down and you're just having exposition thrown at you. Um, and it's like you said, it's very well blocked and it's very well shot.
1: Yeah. And and a big thing of that, and this might lead on to onset life in a way is that citizen Kane had a big effect on the way this movie was shot.
0: Yeah. I, I can absolutely see that.
1: Cause citizen Kane was at RKO before this and essentially they're like, hey, let's recreate that look. So a lot of deep focus in these movie in this in this movie where you're seeing a lot of like people in the foreground, midground, background mm-hmm. stage with like multiple people. Um, and it's it's present in when they're in the like at the Grail House and you're seeing all the four characters kind of talking, and then in the confrontation scene where you're seeing uh Helen and Anne, and Mr. Grail and then Moose and then and Marlo. It's a pretty confined space. It's not a huge room. It's not a mansion like their pre- like the like the uh the Grail mansion. But yeah, uh Dimitric blocks it really well. More on Onset Life. Film shoot lasted 44 days. Wow. Due to actor Mike Mazursky who plays Moose being 6'4" And Dick Powell 6'2. Really? Dimitrik had to, sh- yeah. <laughs> Dimitrik had to show a bigger gap in their sizes. So uh, they did a few things. They built slanted ceilings for when Mazursky came closer to camera, he appeared bigger than what he was.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cause I'm thinking specifically of that scene I was talking about where the, the, you find out that Moose is tied up in it. Yeah. And he, yeah, he seems to be like towering over both of those guys.
1: They also had Powell stand in a trench that they dug out, so they could show in the two shots.
0: Well, they didn't do that with Bogart. That's for sure. Nope. But I'll say that's that's pretty that's pretty rare in Hollywood to have to make your leading man look shorter. Yeah, exactly. This movie and and The Lord of the Rings are probably the
1: Dick Powell's like, I want to be a true actor. I gotta be like inferior to this guy in terms of physicalities. But yeah, it's like it was like it's like a two inch difference between the two. But yeah, I said Citizen Kane, again, going with that with the ceiling stuff. That's why I had a lot of ceiling shots and shadowy images because of Citizen Kane. Uh, While on set, Powell apparently did impersonations of himself of when he was younger in musicals to entertain the crew. (laughs) Uh, Some changes. There's two big changes they made from the book to the movie, apparently. Uh, They changed Anne Grail's character from the book. Anne was originally the daughter of an honest cop. And she gets involved in the case. Paxton, John Paxton, the screenwriter, made it to where she's the stepdaughter of Helen to give it a more Freudian (laughs) storyline. Because Helen is her stepmother, who's the seductress. Well, and it,
0: because, because this book came out after the Big Sleep, right?
1: Yes. Because a year after
0: the Big Sleep. Because that does give it a little bit more of a Big Sleep vibe, where the, you know, in the Big Sleep, the kind of the film fatale and the, the whatever, you know, the, the other. Mm-hmm. love interest or sisters yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: trusting woman is yeah yeah. Of, yeah. Our, yeah
0: our sisters in in the big sleep so that that does kind of yeah. you i I'd, I'd imagine the writer had probably read the big sleep as well because I, I i noticed that going into this i was like oh this kind of feels like the big sleep and that you know their step stepmother related, and stepdaughter yeah. is a little different than sisters but yeah it was these, yeah. these these two women who are within the same family and and both of them are telling him not to trust the other um yeah. does feel pretty reminiscent of of the big sleep.
1: Yeah. Uh one other plot line that was cut from the from the film, uh Amthor, I think in the book, uh ran a fleet of gambling boats off the coast of Los Angeles. It wasn't cut due to the production code. Instead it was cut because there was a real life gangster by the name of Anthony Cornero, and he had gambling boats off of LA shores outside the three mile limit. Apparently like I don't know if it was gambling was illegal, but you, like, basically it was it was illegal gambling. Boats is what it was, and he hosted many of Hollywood's elite, and they didn't want the storyline to bring bring any attention to this gangster. Is what it was <laughs> so that's what happened.
0: That's that's classical Hollywood for you. You don't want to make any yeah. any gangsters mad.
1: Another thing that happened: it was the first day of shooting. Apparently, Claire, Claire Trevor said that she was literally being sewn into her dress like as like they were shooting the scenes that you could hop in also day one i don't know if this happened the rest of the time but day one uh the makeup artist didn't get uh a call sheet or something so trevor had to do all of her makeup on her own for day one wow. i don't know if that fire continue. the
0: production secretary
1: i know <laughs> well, real quick because we didn't talk about that much in favorite scenes we talked about powell but like what do you think of claire trevor and as as helen in this movie
0: yeah i think i think she's a she's a great Film fatale you know she she she's a little you know as this is an earlier um neo noir the 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 character of the film fatale hadn't become as like stereotypical as as i think it, it does yeah. later um so you don't get that like lauren bacall like smoky confidence um i mean she's definitely a confident woman and uh and and comes off as a little duplicitous but but mm-hmm. it's not you know the the complete uh i don't i don't even know what the what the word for it would be but but you i mean you know you know what i'm referring to the the jessica rabbit of it all like the 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 saunter yeah, and it's... the i'm not bad i'm just drawn that way which would come to be you know the probably the the most recognizable version of femme is isn't there yet and and i i like that her performance because because it it does put the the story does kind of put you in conflict in the beginning you've got like i said you've got these two women that are both lying to him and are both manipulating him and it's Mm -hmm. and it's not really clear who he should trust um yeah i I do like that scene when he goes he goes to the bar with her and she she runs off to the bathroom and and he finds that Anne is is at the table and he's like you know are you are you jealous are you going to try and break up our date and she's like oh she already left like she (laughs) she bailed on you immediately Uh, she just want
1: to get you here yeah. yeah
0: yeah so it's yeah she she played they both play it really well and that neither of them initially come off as as what you would think of as a femme fatale yeah that's and, a good and, point and so kinda... it, it does make the end you know e- it, even at the end you're still like you know yeah she might be manipulative but like she's not the kind of person who would shoot somebody but yeah sure enough she like steals his gun and pulls it on him she is awards and
1: aftermath so the film opened on december 15th 1944 in minneapolis minnesota under the novel's original title farewell my lovely Hmm. and they also were doing previews in new england at the same time can you guess why they changed the name
0: uh no i really didn't really don't know
1: audience members the test screenings thought it was going to be a musical
0: oh because it was dick powell oh and then they put murder in there oh okay okay
1: yeah because they they believed dick powell in a movie called farewell my lovely was gonna be a musical comedy, and they're like, "No, no, 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 no! We gotta fix this.
0: <laughs> we gotta tell them off the bat there is gonna be murder,
1: <laughs> murder, my sweet." So it's like it takes the same kind of like structure of the of the title, yeah. But it's just like we gotta throw murder. Make sure they know this. This ain't your. This ain't your. Your your dad's dick pal.
0: This is <laughs> this is the this is I'm your new to think. dick pal. And 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 and. No, you know what? I'll hold off on that because I'm sure we'll talk about that at the end of the. I'm like just trying to think of a comparison to like who today, yeah. Like this, yeah, this kind be of be that person. This change would be, but um, I'll keep yeah. thinking on it.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, like I said, it was released the same year as Double Indemnity and another film noir, Lara, two other groundbreaking noir films. So in a way, 1944 laid the groundwork of like what the noir genre and style would become. Uh, after this film dick powell never made a musical after this uh corner had powell star in only dramas crime films and noir films so his his gamble powell's gamble of saying i can do drama paid off this movie made a total of about six hundred thousand dollars in profit which is around today like 10 million today a profit but like solid profit mm-hmm. so for a struggling studio like rko that was a big deal. And they're just like, we got to put Dick Palin more films like this. So we did a movie, a movie called like a uh, cornered uh, pitfall. He got paired up with another kind of like uh, noir actress became known as a noir actress, uh, Elizabeth Scott. And so that became like his thing. And then uh, this is the big kind of the big story. It doesn't have much to do with this movie, but it has something to do with the major players. Uh, Anne Shirley, who plays Anne grail, this was her final film role really so she was 26 when this movie came out she did not pa- she she died in 1993 so she was 75 when she passed away the reason why she became married to adrian scott who was the producer of this film but in 1947 i believe scott was blacklisted because he was named as a communist Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, both Scott and director Edwin Dimitrik were two of two of the members of the Hollywood 10, which is a group of Hollywood creators that refused to testify at the House of Un-Americans committee about communist or they've refused to name names.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Scott and Demetric were both fired from RKO and fled to Europe uh, while in Europe and Shirley didn't go with Scott and Scott's like, I'm staying in Europe. And they decided to divorce. So some people kind of believe because of Shirley's marriage to Scott is that she kind of got, I guess, gray listed or whatever as well, where she couldn't work again because of
0: it. That's wild. She, I mean, she's great in this and to be, she is. Yeah. You know, 26. I, yeah. Cause I, I looked into her a little, I mean, I just looked at some of her other projects and she was kind of like Powell. She was a, a teen star um, yeah. as well.
1: And she was like, she was nominated for an Oscar, in 37 and Stella Dallas, which stars uh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Mm-hmm. So like she was like on the rise around this time and doing like three, four movies a year is what it looks like. And yeah, Murder, My Sweet was just like, that's it. He was blacklisted She uh, and decided to move the family to Europe. She wrote him a Dear John letter <laughs> stating she would rather stay behind and divorce him, which she did. So Dimitrik real quick, he re- he went to England uh, after his passport or, or he he went to england had to return from england to the u.s after his passport expired and he was arrested when he returned he spent four months in prison and because of that he felt that he was duped by the communist party so he decided to name names Ah, oh. Dimitri told or he was a friendly witness was the terms they used Dimitri told the house of americans committee that it was scott uh, adrian scott the producer of murder my Sweet*, who forced him to put communist messages in his films because they had made several movies together
0: you know what i didn't didn't really pick up on any of those in this one
1: i don't know if there were any in this movie
0: <laughs> i it's not like at the end they were like let's take the jade and share it between all of us <laughs> share it with let's
1: split it up and let, let's just yeah let's do that did
0: uh, so did he go on to have uh, the career that i'm sure was promised to him when they told him to to name names
1: Edward Dmitry, he worked consistently after that. One of the movies he directed was The Kane Mutiny in the 1950s, 1954, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart and it was nominated for multiple Oscars, including Best Picture. He worked until uh, 1975.
0: So on the scale of success after naming names, he's maybe not quite an Elliot Kazan, but uh, but he's doing all right for yeah, himself.
1: Yeah, huh? he, he did all right. He had a <laughs> career, is what it was. He consistently worked for, let's see, with big stars. I, I, he didn't make a lot of, like, It's he's a journeyman is what it looks like. It's just like a lot of these movies I've, I've heard of or maybe have seen but nothing outside of maybe like the cane mutiny that pops of like a, a big, huge hit. He didn't move. The one that like, I think kind of like tipped everybody off about like communist stuff was uh, a movie called crossfire, which stars, which was p- directed by Edward Dimitrik produced by Adrian Scott and also written by sc- the, the screenwriter for this movie, John Paxton. And that starred uh, Robert Mitchum, Robert Ryan and Gloria Graham, all three people who are big in a, uh film noir mm-hmm. and it was also the first the first quote-unquote b movie to receive a best picture nomination but it dealt with like uh anti-semitism is what it was and for some reason they're just like oh that's gotta be communist
0: oh <laughs> uh, uh, what a what a weird time man
1: <laughs> yeah it's yeah mm. but yeah that was a movie that because kind of, it got five nom- nominations so i don't know if that that became like oh we gotta take a look at these guys i'm not sure what it was <laughs>
0: So what worked about this movie? I mean Marlowe, Marlowe's a great a great character simply because and and here's the thing, you know, it's it's because Philip Marlowe is such a integral character in film noir, he can it can kind of feel stereotypical sometimes, but you have to remember like how influential yeah. Chandler was on yeah. the the genre. But he he can feel kind of boilerplate, but I think that's also kind of how Chandler intended him to be you know he he was this, this this stand-in for the the mystery is the story and and you just have this you know red-blooded american alcoholic with quippy comebacks who's going to be our like stand-in to um handle this so you know you trade out your your cold calculating uh heroin addict uh sherlock holmes for a <laughs> alcoholic maybe not that smart but um <laughs> but uh brave and and kind of dumb in a, in a good way uh, yeah but yeah it's especially as especially as the first film outing for marlo yeah. i think the the film really nails him and and you know that's yeah as much credit to powell as it is to the to the screenwriter who adapted this and the director but um but yeah it's a great introduction to to marlo and to kind of that that type of storytelling that marlo's involved in
1: yeah no and no, i agree and i think like i said it's it's a movie that like when watching it now if you know the genre a little bit you're like oh this feels very cliche but you had to put in the context of like oh at this point like all the stuff they're doing wasn't really set in stone yet Mm -hmm. so it's like it it sets the tone for it It sets the tone for Marlowe um and just everything uh yeah the cinematography i think works the visual style works uh yeah but yeah i think i do think dick powell is the is like a really good marlo to start it off yeah um because i think it sets it sets the uh and when bogart comes in again i think bogart i heard eddie Mueller, who's like the, the noir alley guy on tcm talk about how bogart he prefers pal because bogart feels like he's playing superman like no one can really do bogart harm is what it is and pal is like getting beat up Hit constantly, like just kind of just finds himself thrown into these scenarios. Like, how the hell did I get yeah, here? Yeah, well, I mean,
0: they, yeah, and I thought it was interesting. They, they don't, and I don't know how much of this is in the adaptation because I've I've read The Big Sleep, but I I have not read this one. Uh, but there, yeah, I mean, there's a point where it's like, I was like, does does he have brain damage? Like he is he gets beat up so bad <laughs> in this movie, hit. gets yeah. gets shot up with drugs, can barely function yep. for a while there and yeah. um yeah the big sleep doesn't quite he gets he gets outsmarted a lot in the big sleep like he's he yeah he marlo always kind of feels like he's a step behind in that one but um but yeah he doesn't get just like as physically abused as um as powell does in this one so yeah, that might you know that might add to the aspect where you're like oh bogart feels like he's invincible well, yeah that's also because they didn't like knock him out five times and also like shoot him up with heroin or whatever they were shooting him up with and and all of that but yeah i mean and while we're talking about that that's something within within noir especially within american noir is is the american noir detective is almost always a step behind like he's he's not yeah he's not a Sherlock Holmes who like looks at the situation from the start and like immediately knows what's happening. He's almost always outsmarted. He's usually taken by surprise and and knocked out cold at least one or two times per story. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like we've, we've talked about before the the British hero versus the American hero. And we've talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. James Bond versus Indiana Jones and this idea that like Bond always knows what he's going to do. Whereas Indiana Jones, you can actively see him, uh, improvising as as things are happening and you can also see him getting the 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 shit kicked out of him uh and so that's the american hero is is always meant to be a little bit more rugged and and yeah and in being rugged i guess that means you also get beat up a good bit
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh did anything not work about this movie
0: huh um you know nothing nothing really stood out to me here here's the thing these all of these movies and especially Chandler's work, like you said, with combining all these different storylines can get a little convoluted and, um, and the story doesn't juggle like moose super well. Like, especially because a lot of times I think the reason that the, the kind of secondary mystery was always in the back of my mind is because this movie opens so heavily on the secondary mystery. Like the first 10 minutes are devoted exclusively to that. And, and so then when the, when the primary mystery is introduced, we're kind of sitting here like, okay, well, what about that woman? So you always, you're always kind of expecting her to show up in the movie. And so that, that one's kind of telegraphed to you. It's like, it's, it's obviously her, like there's, you know, you get, you get into act three and you're like, he's not just going to turn up this lounge singer at this point. It's obviously one of these two women that he's been interacting with in this movie. Um, so, so that one, I don't know that one's handled super well. Um, but, but yeah, other than that, I think, you know, from a performance standpoint and a technical standpoint, it was very well done.
1: Yeah, I I, I wrote the whole mystery takes a few watches to fully understand what's happening. Like it's almost a little too much because I think the three storylines that he combined or that he put together for the book were it was Moose char- or the Moose type character looking for a former girlfriend who was a showgirl uh, Amthor running in drugs and like, Gambling boats mm. and then the jade necklace was the third one right and they just combined all three together uh i'm not so sure how i feel about like the happy ending of like marlo and Anne. yeah it's a little, little cutesy
0: it was a fun yeah, it was a fun sequence but it might have worked better in like a like a uh i don't know in a rom-com than uh than yeah. in this movie
1: it feels like after that huge ending where people just died, including her like, possible, including her
0: father, right? Don't they say that her dad died? Did ah? They say he got shot. I think so.
1: he got shot. I can't remember. I think he was doing okay, but he was just like, "Oh, so the the kid's okay," because that's the girl, and she's been sitting there the entire time listening to his story yeah and it's fun um, i
0: i do appreciate like the the way he's like marlo's going off about her and the cop keeps like looking back at her and being like i don't I don't yeah. know i couldn't say that was it was a fun yeah. sequence but yeah you're right it maybe it doesn't fit in after like three people have just been murdered <laughs> that was
1: yeah that was my i was like okay and it's it's the fun like uh like he smells her perfume or something and then he's just like hey i've Hey, uh, Nully, or Nulty, haven't kissed anyone in a long time. Like it's,
0: it's just Yeah, it was cute. It was cute. It was fun. But, but yeah, maybe maybe more meant for a screwball uh, comedy somewhere than, uh, than a film more.
1: Like a Dick Powell musical or something. <laughs> um, but uh, okay, alternate universe cast. Only got one thing. Uh, apparently, Anne Shirley and Claire Trevor wanted to flip roles because it would be against type for both of them but the studio thought they already had enough risk with pal playing the the lead (laughs) all right guys everybody else just play like you're supposed to okay (laughs) we're letting
0: one person try and break type right here we'll
1: do it next time guys we'll play it next time but yeah that was the big one and then Uh, the guy that plays moose is
0: like i want to play the rich father
1: moose apparently i think i think pal had to go and fight for him because uh dimitri because his moose was just a former wrestler he wasn't really an actor uh and uh mike Mazursky really wanted to play this role and i think pal went and like fought for him to get the role so film facts pal is the first actor and only actor to portray Marlowe on film television and radio wow he was the first person to do it each time he had radio appearances in 1944 And 1945 and his television appearance as Philip Marlowe was in 1954 on the television show Climax, a weekly anthology show. Uh, The first episode to start off the whole series, which ran ran for a number of seasons, was Pal as Marlowe, an adaptation of The Long Goodbye. Hmm. Uh, The the third episode of the series we have mentioned before, uh, it was an adaptation of Casino Royale, where Barry Nelson played Jimmy Bond, an American spy, Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Lorre played the the villain, Lashif, Lashif, in 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 the show. The film was re- remade in 1975, titled "Farewell, My Lovely." This time, with Robert Mitchum in the lead. And as I said earlier, it, it looks great. It's a great like neo noir. But Mitchum had aged out of the role. <laughs> it was like 58, and it was it just feels a little off. I just I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And Charlotte Rampling's also in it. She's pretty good. But yeah, it's just something that it's, it has great. It's now like it's ta- it even like takes the whole like a shot. We even talk about the whole the whole window shot when you first see Moose. Mm-hmm. I think they bring that back in there. And it's just it's it's something's a little off about it. OK, story questions Uh, real quick. What types of drugs are Amthor? What type of drugs are Amthor selling or is he selling?
0: I mean, I, I know that historically speaking in the 40s, especially in L.A. Heroin was was rampant. Um, mm hmm probably amphetamines as well it was it was all the yeah. it was all the drugs that were being used by troops in world war ii yeah that were making their way back into la through the ports and you know amphetamines were widespread used or in especially in the in the nazi army but um, also in the american yeah, yeah. army during world war ii and heroin was used as a painkiller so um probably yeah probably honestly both of those
1: i buy that uh how long do ann and Marlowe do you think last
0: oh until his next case <laughs> Till the next. Well, by my yeah, by big sleep, she's gone, right? Till the next pretty woman walks in through his door. Yeah. Uh.
1: So awards. The Beatrice Strait Award. Actor, actress, limited scenes that kills it. Huh.
0: Um. I I kind of really like the dad. No. Uh, he's good, Mister Grail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. He 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 only has a few scenes. Like he's not super tied in with the. You know, it's it's kind of funny. He just kind of like hires Marlowe and and then like it's like okay and my wife will will now like handle the rest of the details with you um yeah but yeah he has he has that really great scene where where they the two of them kind of talk it out and he's like he's like she makes me happy like am i not allowed to i'm i'm old and rich am i not allowed to you know pursue the things (laughs) that make me happy (laughs) like So I can't have a young woman. What's the, what's the deal here? Yeah. But uh, but especially in the last scene, he's he's really good as as he everyone's coming together, yeah, and, yeah. and he's he's got the gun, and, and then Moose comes yeah. in. and He's like, I had to do it. Is would Moose qualify as Beatrice Strait? or is he in too many Saints? I think so. I okay. I, I mean I don't, I don't ever think he's he's truly like caring, except maybe like the first scene. Yeah, I do. I yeah, I did love that there. the their their chemistry was great, and I loved the 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 sequence in the bar when he was like I. I want you to meet a man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Where is she? Okay, so we're going with uh, uh, the father, Mr. Grail, played by Miles Mander. That's his name. That's a great name. Died Died actually two years after this movie was made.
5: Forgive me, please. It's unnecessary for me to say I'm an old man. You can see that. I only have two interests in life, my Jane and my wife. Oh, and of course my daughter here. But my wife's the most important. Do you find her beautiful? Why not? She is beautiful, isn't she? And desirable. Maybe you think it's improper for an old man to have a young and desirable wife. I've played a little game with myself. I, I pretended that she would have become my wife, even if I'd been unable to give her wealth. I've enjoyed pretending that. It's given me great happiness. Right, of course. But now I'm losing her. I don't know why. I don't understand what's happened. But I'm losing her. Ironic that it should be because of my jade. Because of that, a man has died. A paltry, foppish man. No consequence, who's better dead. Nevertheless, he's dead because of my necklace. I don't know why. But it must stop. It must stop, Mr. Mallow.
1: It must stop. Annie Potts, X Factor Awards, supporting actor, actress that is the most memorable.
0: Um I you know, I, I think it it comes down to the the two female leads here. Mm-hmm. Um I agree. I I think um Anne stood out a little bit more to me. Okay. See, I'm going with Claire. Okay. <laughs> or I'm All right. Going Helen. Well, there we go. We're split down the middle. Um <laughs> yeah i don't know i thought she you know the here's the thing as you're watching this movie you know there's going to be a film fatale i thought she kind of nailed the amb- ambiguity of it a little bit more than than her stepmother. that's did. fair um i you know especially have, we're we're introduced to her you know, and it's interesting you know we're introduced to her before marlo is kind of because we we see her at the crime yeah. and he doesn't remember it because like i said he has he obviously has brain damage for several concussions <laughs> um but yeah so so then when she shows up to the to his office and she's like immediately lying we're just like what is going on with this woman like she yeah i really don't that's, know what her angle is that's
1: fair i i do like her but i in terms of like finding out that this was supposed to be kind of like a, like revitalize claire trevor's career uh i think it's like cool here's a show piece where you can like you kind of play these femme fatales before but here's like you like getting like the full treatment of like, you're going to carry that character basically. Mm -hmm. Like even the opening. I mean, it's, it's a very, I mean, the way it introduces her, it's a very noir style introduction where like the first thing you see is like her leg sitting behind the chair or whatever, when Marlo Mm -hmm. comes in the room and it's just like bobbing up and down. Then she just like sits up out of the chair. And again, very cliche, but probably the time, not that cliche of how (laughs) they reveal her. And so yeah, I just I think I mean it's both of them are very equal. So I think it's tough. It's flip a coin. Yeah,
0: you know, and we were we were talking about uh, influences in this genre on on um, different types of noir that came afterwards, and and you, yeah. you brought up tech noir. Um, yeah. I would be very surprised oh, yeah. if the hairstylist for Blade Runner had not seen this film.
1: That is very true. I, why because you those said are some that. very
0: Rachel. Rachel has a lot of of hairstyles that look very similar to hers in this movie.
1: I I agree completely. I agree. I, I, when you said like, Techno, I was like, ah, Blade Runner.
0: And I mean Blade, Blade Runner was always intended as a you know a, a sci-fi noir, but I think especially the Rachel's hair. There are a couple different styles that she would show up with in this, and I was like, "That is like they—they they must have taken straight inspiration from, from this style." I no, mean, I agree. Well, flip a coin: Claire, Trevor, or Anne Shirley.
4: Sometimes I hate men. All men, old men, young men, beautiful young men who use rose water and almost heels who are private detectives. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, darling. I couldn't help laughing. But you should know by now that men play rough. They soften you up, throw you off guard, and then belt you one. That was a dirty trick. But maybe it'll teach you not to overplay a good hand. Now she doesn't like you. She hates men. That was only the first half of the speech. The rest of it goes like this. I hate their women too, especially the big league blondes. Beautiful, expensive babes who know what they've got. Oh, bubble bath and dewy morning and moonlight inside blue steel cold cold like that only not that clean your slip shows dear
1: so the gene hackman mvp award person who carries the movie director actor or whoever i can't
0: believe i'm gonna say this but dick powell he's young
4: there and healthy we go.
1: i love to hear it dick powell i mean I we've said before i think just a a solid introduction to the philip marlowe character and i think he pulls it off like it could have gone very poorly for him and he knew how important this was for his career and i think to pull it off the way he did i think was was astonishing when you look at the time period mm. of like hey i've been trying 10 years to get my movie to where i'm not just playing a musical comedy character let me be dark and brooding and also wisecracking and also flirtatious um give it g- give me that role damn it <laughs> And there we go, he got it. I think he did a great job with it. I'm Dr.
2: Sonderborg. You've been suffering from narcotic poisoning. Honey County, you pumped me full of this poisoning, huh, Doc? Speak up, Dr. Jekyll. I'm in a wild mood tonight. I want to go dance on the phone. I hear the banshees calling. I haven't shot a man in a week. You very nearly died, sir. I had to give you digitalis. Also a little something to make me talk. What was I supposed to talk about? Maybe about a jade necklace I haven't got? How was I? Was I good telling you about what I don't have? Did the customers like me? Or will Amther be disappointed in you?
0: Final
1: questions. If this film was remade the day, who do you cast?
0: All right, this is what I've been thinking on. I have a few. Yeah, I mean, I mean, here's the thing. You know, we don't. Musicals aren't as widespread as they used to be. So we don't. We don't have a lot of people who are like purely musical actors that that would have that shock value because i mean someone like yeah you can't really point to someone like hugh jackman because he does both like he does wolverine and he does the music man i don't know if he could pull it off but i think if you're going for a parallel feeling Mm -hmm. um i think you have to put zach efron i
1: think that's i weird i didn't put him down his mind but i weirdly thought zach efron as well yeah point. and i mean i so think you I'm can compare go it off, to yeah.
0: some people that have like pulled off this this move or you know like shia labeouf has, has done something similar but but we know yeah. him at this point like i don't think it would be that much of a shock to put him in a in a detective movie um and i'd like to see him in this role i think he'd be solid in this role but um
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah i think and robert pattinson you know has done a similar kind of like oh hey you guys thought i was this one thing but i'm, I'm, I'm a serious actor guys yeah. but um and afron's tried it with like the ted bundy thing and everything yeah and yeah Paper he's Bull he's eight. tried but i think i think this would yeah. be yeah this is the breakout yeah i think so <laughs>
1: okay i like it uh what about helen
0: all right um you gotta go somebody who can be high class but but then you're like oh yeah she used to be a lounge okay i'm going reese witherspoon
1: okay I was she was up there for me. You even tell you my pick. Yeah, uh, Rachel McAdams. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Who'd you have for who'd you have for Marlowe? I had Bill Hader, which just feels very like I think he's already done it with Barry. Yeah, and he might be a little too old, but like I I had Bill Hader as as a he'd possibility. be a fantastic
0: detective. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the thing. But he has like the comedy element. They're like cool. We're just gonna kind of do like a straight drama type thing. Mm-hmm. But that was that was my guy. And then Rachel McAdams for Helen. So Reese spin for you. I like Reese spin for that. Um Ann. Who do you have for Ann?
0: I don't know. Let me see. Somebody would pair with with Efron. Well, who do you have?
1: I have three people.
0: Two are usual suspects, I feel
1: like. And that's Florence Pugh and Saoirse Ronan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I think Florence Pugh would work more. The one, and she's actually worked with Efron before. And she, if you're doing like a period piece, and she always gets put in these, Lily Collins came to mind. Oh uh, yeah, because because Lily Collins is an actress I really do like, but she's she's in stuff that ha, like gets some sort of like buzz, but like nothing's really popped. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like she's she's been in Ted Bundy. She was in like there was Emily in Paris or whatever recently on Netflix, which like people sound like. Like hate watched it. it <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. Um. Uh. She was in like the the last tycoon on Amazon. She did uh, uh, rules don't apply. She's in Mank coming up as well. Um. So yeah, Lily Collins. Think, was kind speaking of, of
0: Mank, I think Amanda Seyfried could play Helen. Could do That's, really well yeah. with Helen. Um. I, agree I with like that uh. Thing. I I'm I'm always looking for more Laura Harrier. I think Laura Harrier would um would be really well in the Anne role too always i'm always looking for for opportunities to cast her and things um
1: i like that and she
0: did she was in hollywood right i didn't watch hollywood but i think she was in hollywood so she's she's done some period uh moose moose um (laughs) uh batista right it's gotta be batista that's
1: that's (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly who i have It's dave batista i was like it's gotta be him it makes the most sense makes the most sense uh moving on uh does the film fit with any other genre
0: um i mean like like you said just because something's a neo-noir doesn't mean it's a detective movie so i think you know you know you need to clarify that it is a just because it's a noir doesn't mean it's yeah so it's a noir and it's a detective movie for sure um it's it's very solidly in both um yeah I think that's you know a, a, a crime movie like there there is organized crime in it and you know, not all detective movies dealt with you know mob the mob and, and mob bosses and that sort of thing so
1: that's true and then no, there's a, you know
0: there's a little cutesy rom com moment at the end so
1: <laughs> there you go they were still trying to figure out the whole noir thing guys um and then how does this film fit within the noir noir genre
0: I mean visibly obviously it, it's there you know you've got the the visual style from a storytelling standpoint it is a it is a noir detective story for sure mm-hmm. um you've got your femme fatale you've got your kind of uh exhausted detective i, I love i always love yeah. how tired detectives are in the in this genre <laughs> they're just like I, I don't want to do any of this oh you're paying me a hundred bucks okay fine uh yeah. show. Oh, okay but yeah I, I think it it's 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 and, and i mean it's it's chandler so like it's gonna be it's gonna fit in because he pretty he, he set a lot of yeah. the, the genre himself i agree
1: yeah, you. Yeah, so you have the femme fatale. You have like, I guess the trusting, like the the opposing, the the antithesis of that, of the femme fatale in a way, uh, who is competing in some way. Uh, you have the MacGuffin. You have the urban setting. You have all. You have the narration. And also another trope that happens is like the opening scene that establishes the narration for the rest of the movie. It's an interrogation, or your mm-hmm. lead person's just like, let me tell you what what's going on in my life right now. Um, that's a big component of the noir genre. Well, I think that's all we have for you on "Murder My Sweet," guys. Any other thing you want to add, Thomas?
0: I mean, I wish I had like some some sacks to go behind me and I could go off on a monologue about what we learned today and, uh, <laughs> and you know.
1: Well, well, let me tell you,
2: I,
0: I yeah. fired up this movie this morning. I was nursing a heavy hangover from a from five <laughs> fingers of whiskey and a blow to the back of the head last night. This movie that's sauntered it. into my life. Uh, that's and all. And I was was like, like
1: <laughs> and and I just couldn't turn away. Yeah, fade out yeah. to a saxophone. <laughs> but yeah, that's all we have for you guys. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast and Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're on. Like one of our listeners who left us a review on Podcast Addict recently, uh, JW34 says. Great show that covers a wide array of movie genres, and topics. You'll learn a lot and get a different perspective on some of your favorites. I highly recommend this one. Thanks for the review. And if you listen to the show and you haven't written us a review yet, we truly appreciate it. Keep those five-star reviews coming. And if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure you watch a lot of film noir this month in celebration of Noir November Next week, we're talking about John Huston's Key Largo, starring... Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Edward G. Robinson, Lionel Barrymore, and also Claire Trevor Mm. is also in Key Largo. You don't want to miss that. So Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. And thank y'all for listening. Bye.